1986, around the time I had just started injecting, I was visiting my friend Dave and he was going to go buy drugs for us. And so I was waiting in his apartment with this woman that I didn't know. And she was a friend of his. So I was just like talking with her. When she told me that I was at risk for HIV, I was shocked because I had just thought that that was a risk for gay men. So she told me that I shouldn't share needles because that was a huge risk. But if I had no other option, I should clean my needle twice with bleach and twice with water. And that would dramatically reduce the risk that I would get infected. And she was there actually to get my friend Dave into rehab. And pretty much anybody else in that situation who wasn't educated about what we now call harm reduction um, would have just said, yeah, you got to get treatment. You got, you know, you're going to die. You got to stop. And I would have just shut down and not listened. I didn't want to stop. I didn't know how to stop. And I certainly wasn't going to stop that instant and leave myself in withdrawal. I believe that she saved my life because the guy I was visiting actually was already HIV positive, and I probably would have shared with him. Huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we're exploring the public health approach called harm reduction. We've just heard Maya Salovitz's first encounter with it as a 21-year-old drug user living in New York City at the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that we should focus on stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. For her book about the history of harm reduction called Undoing Drugs, Salovitz decided to try and find that woman who told her to clean her needles. I didn't know her name. I knew she was from San Francisco. That was it. And so I talked to many, many people in the early harm reduction scene in San Francisco. Um, and so I was able, by a process of elimination and talking to other people, I did eventually find her. Her name was Maureen Gammon. And in 2020, Salovitz reached her on the phone. When I realized she was the right person and she realized she was the right person, we just both cried. For me, I was glad to be able to find her and to be able to thank her for really having saved my life. Um, and for her, it was about realizing that she had made a difference, a major difference in at least one person's life. I think that, you know, one of the most spiritual things you can do for another human being is to see them and to value them and to say that your life is valuable, even if you're using drugs. Salovitz kept using drugs for a few more years after meeting Maureen Gammon back in 1986. But from that moment on, she always used clean needles. And looking back, she says her path to recovery began that day. Definitely one of the things that happens when you're addicted and one of the things that really leads to addiction is self-hatred. And so when somebody values you, you do start to value yourself like that little bit more. And it often takes time for that to translate into change. But when somebody says something like, hey, I want you to stay alive. I don't care if you continue to use drugs. I want you to stay safe. That's such a different message than, than such people get in the rest of the world because you know, it's kind of like, well, you don't deserve a house unless you get abstinent or, you know, we won't give you these services unless you go and pray or do this or do that. It's always there's always some demand that you be different than you are. And when you just accept somebody right there in the moment, I just think you're valuable right now, right here. That is an incredibly powerful spiritual thing, I believe. But where's the line between accepting somebody as they are and enabling their harmful behavior to continue? This is the tension inherent in harm reduction, and it's an active debate in the United States right now. New York City just opened the first government-sanctioned supervised injection sites in the country. These are places where people can come and inject themselves with heroin and know that if they accidentally overdose, someone is standing by with a drug that will reverse the effects of the heroin and revive them. A little later, we'll hear from someone who runs one of the most famous supervised injection sites in the world. And we'll hear from a drug policy expert 
who thinks they are a terrible idea. But first, let's put the underlying theory here in a larger context. Outside of drug use, harm reduction is not controversial, says Maya Solovitz. It's basically accepting that people are going to take some risks. How do we minimize those risks knowing that we're not going to stop all risky activity? So seatbelts are a good example. Um, Whatever kind of gear you use to protect yourself when you're skydiving or kayaking or doing anything else that has risk. Um, It could be wearing a mask to prevent COVID. Um, It could be having a designated driver um, to avoid um, alcohol-related harm. So after drinking alcohol, you're less likely to harm yourself or others by not driving. And with the seatbelt example, we know car crashes kill tens of thousands of Americans every year. But we don't demand people stop driving. We try to make driving safer with driver's ed, seatbelts, airbags, traffic lights. In the context of drugs, we know injecting heroin puts people at high risk for infection and overdose death. So is it best to ask for abstinence as the only way to be safe? Or do we focus on trying to make them safer as they keep using? These are the questions that led to the rise of harm reduction as an official approach to public health. It started as a way to prevent the spread of HIV among drug users in Liverpool, England, as Maya Solovitz explains in her book, Undoing Drugs. This happened in the uh, mid-1980s. Liverpool had a lot of IV drug use, and Edinburgh, which isn't that far from there in Scotland, had just discovered that 50% of its IV drug users were already infected with HIV. And Liverpool had the advantage that they didn't have any HIV yet. So they started distributing clean needles to drug users. Now, over in the United States at that time, Congress banned federal funding for such needle exchange programs. Obama lifted that ban in 2016, and the Biden administration recently started giving grants for them. But the folks in Liverpool back in the 80s went much further. Including heroin and cocaine prescribing for people who are not ready to stop. Doctors were prescribing heroin and cocaine to people for the purpose of getting high. They said, yes, this is part of medicine. You can prescribe cocaine and heroin. We've made them illegal on the street. So let's see if we can help these people who are already addicted and who are not going to stop so that they don't become a black market and that they don't die from overdose or from other problems associated with a black market. Hmm. You know, it's it's so hard to get your head around the idea that a doctor who's you know, one of their core ethical uh, beliefs is to do no harm. And and if being addicted to a drug like heroin is innately harmful, then a doctor who's facilitating that or enabling that addiction is doing harm. You're getting it backwards. The harm is being done by the street drugs. Heroin itself Actually, people can be on it for many years if they have a clean supply without really any problem. Like, obviously, if a doctor goes and gets a 16-year-old person and puts them on heroin, that is doing harm. But if you have somebody who's already doing heroin and cannot stop, and they're using a street supply, which these days is really cut with fentanyl and can kill you any day, now you give them a safer supply, you are reducing harm, you are You are just enabling them to live and you are actually reducing harm. Prescribing heroin for people to get high has never been legal in the United States. But those Liverpool doctors were laying the groundwork for what has become common in the U.S., prescribing opioids to treat opioid addiction. Medications like methadone and buprenorphine eliminate withdrawal symptoms and reduce drug cravings by acting on the same opioid receptors in the brain as heroin. But when they're prescribed properly, they don't produce the euphoria. And that's a key distinction. Someone who's taking methadone under a doctor's supervision is still dependent on opioids, but they are no longer addicted. Addiction is defined as compulsive behavior that continues in the face of negative consequences. You can be on methadone for 30 years. Your life looks like just like anybody else's. Um, yes, you still have physical dependence on the medication, but you do not have the addiction anymore because the addiction is about the compulsive behavior and the negative consequences. It's not the substance itself. 
Using medication like methadone or buprenorphine to treat opioid addiction is so effective, it's now widely accepted in the United States. Naloxone is another medicine that's been embraced here. It comes in a nasal spray or an injection and rapidly reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. It can't kill you. You can't overdose on it. All it does is reverse an overdose. You can't get high on it. And there's really few things that are more powerful than actually saving someone's life. Now, naloxone's been around since the 60s, but the opioid epidemic thrust it to new prominence and popularity. Even people who are skeptical about other kinds of harm reduction, like giving clean needles to drug users, they tend to be okay with naloxone. So if we're comfortable reversing an overdose to save a person's life, what about giving that person a safe, supervised place to use their drugs so the life-saving help is immediately available? Inside the injection room, there are 12 booths. It looks very much like a hair salon. That's what a lot of people say. They're faced with mirrors so people can see themselves. That mirror also allows another angle of oversight because we're constantly monitoring people in booths. Darwin Fisher runs Insight, which opened in Canada in 2003. It was the first legal supervised injection site in North America. You'll find it in Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood, where there's a lot of homelessness, drug use, and dealing going on out in the open. So you would walk in through the front door and there's glass. It's, it's very, you can see into it. The decision was made to have glass windows in front to basically say that we should be transparent about what this place is for. This is about healthcare. This is about community. This is not about something that is illicit. A person were to walk in and say, I need to use this site, a staff would come and meet them, we'd take them into an alcove and we'd have a conversation about why they're here, what the site does, and if the site's appropriate for them. We need to make sure that they are an existing drug user. We're not asking them for ID. Uh, we want to actually start this relationship building and trust building. How much effort do you make to encourage any of these individuals who come to you uh, to actually get into recovery? It's not our mandate to force treatment options on people. That's a great way to alienate people away from the service. Like, I don't, I don't want to use in there today because I think Darwin's going to bug me about getting into, getting into treatment, and I'm sick of that. Um, but obviously, it's important to create options for people. When Insight had been opened for two years, uh, we were on the ground floor of this building. And we had a very sympathetic landlord who allowed us to expand. So at that point, we started something called Onsite, which is two floors of treatment that take place right above Insight. That process of recovery for some people can be very slow. I know people who have used Onsite Detox more than 10 times. I've also talked to many people that I've met in the community who no longer use drugs, and they say things like, you know what, I'm so glad for that place, let me keep going to it, because it was only on maybe one of the last times I was up there that I felt something in me start to shift. And our goal in terms of how we interact and care for people at Insight is not predicated on abstinence being their ultimate goal. What we're trying to do is create opportunities for meaning, for quality of life, for agency and for safety for people. Fisher says up to 500 people a day will come through Insight to inject drugs or get clean syringes or wound care. Nurses and trained staff monitor the injection room. There's also a chill-out room where people can go after they inject. It's staffed by drug users who are part of the community. They serve coffee, chat with folks, and keep an eye out for signs of overdose. Fisher says 10 or 15 times a day at Insight, someone will need an overdose intervention. Here's how one of those played out recently. This man used opiates, and he also regularly used benzodiazepines. Um, I'm very glad that he used this site regularly. He was an older gentleman. So he, you know, will come in there and we'll talk generally about movies he likes, movies he hates. He's not a big superhero movie fan. So have some conversation around that. And then he went into his booth to use and, uh, and then came to a chair beside the desk to sort of continue that conversation around movies. Very soon he became somnolent and it's like, Harry, are you doing okay? Harry, you're doing okay. Harry, Harry's not doing okay. So instantly, that crew is going to mobilize. I've got a program staff along with me. We get 
Harry out of his chair and flat on the floor, and there's a lot of floor space in the injection room. The nurse instantly comes over with an oxygen tank. The other nurse comes over with the crash kit. Harry has an airway inserted into his throat, so to make sure that his airway is clear. Harry is put on oxygen. At the same time, the other nurse is drawing up naloxone. That nurse administers naloxone to Harry keeps him on oxygen, monitors the oxygen rate. We put a SAT monitor on him to monitor his heart rate and his blood oxygen level. And then it is the jurisdiction of the nurse to see, do we need to call 911 in this case? They actually decided to call for the paramedics just in case Harry needed longer support at the hospital. In a very short time, the paramedics are coming into the injection room. Harry is starting to revive a little bit at this point in time. It's been a couple minutes after the naloxone. And he just looks at me like, what happened? We were talking about movies a couple seconds ago. Uh, now I'm in a ambulance gurney and I'm gonna to go to the hospital for a little while. It's gonna be a while before I'm back here. Those things happen frequently at Insight. When they happen on the street and in the alleys, there's not that kind of response. Is there less of a drug problem in Vancouver today because of harm reduction, because of efforts like Insight's? Overdose fatalities provincially are higher than they have ever been. They're higher throughout North America than they've ever been. Um, so to talk about a 12-booth facility radically changing things like that, no. And I don't want to portray supervised injection sites or insight as a cure for cancer, a cure for addiction, or a cure for the conundrum that is the downtown east side. Uh, these are very complex and long-standing issues. And again, the stated mandate is to prevent overdose fatalities. Uh, so in people using the site, it is absolutely effective. We've never had an overdose fatality at the site. In fact, nobody has ever died of an overdose in any of the more than 100 supervised injection sites that have opened in Canada, Australia, and Europe over the last 20 years. But critics see that as pretty limited evidence of success. What is the fate of the individuals who participate in the uh, safe injection facilities outside of the facilities where they continue to inject? After all, people who are at the highest risk of an overdose are injecting multiple times a day. And even if they're irregular at a place like Inside, they won't be there every single time they take what could be a fatal dose. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, harm reduction. It's the idea that we can't stop people from doing everything that's dangerous, so we try to make them as safe as possible while they do risky things. We have lifeguards at the pool. We encourage helmets for cyclists. Harm reduction strategies are all around us. But they are best known in the context of drug use, like providing clean needles to people who inject drugs and making naloxone widely available to reverse opioid overdoses. Among the most controversial is supervised injection sites. Drug policy expert David Murray questions what good these sites actually do. How have you saved a life if you perpetuated the high-risk behavior that is producing the threat to begin with? Murray was a top official in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy under George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He's now a senior fellow at the conservative Hudson Institute, where he co-directs the Center for Substance Abuse Policy Research. He's opposed to supervised injection sites. If you rescue a man who has fallen into a river from drowning, how have you saved his life if you then just return him to the water? Uh, to, to continue to perpetuate the injection drug use doesn't reduce the aggregate risk to that behavior. So even if there were expanded facilities and resources available all the time, people are uneven in their participation. They go sometimes, they don't go others. You're perpetuating what is basically the black market illicit drug sales, and they continue to inject elsewhere. And in the aggregate, they end up being lost. Someone who survives an overdose with the help of naloxone is at very high risk of dying from another overdose within the next year unless they enter treatment. In Murray's view, safe injection sites are a signal to people that we have given up hope they'll overcome their addiction. 
Moreover, we're sending a message to a whole generation of kids that injecting illicit drugs is okay because the government is funding places where people can come do it legally. The challenge to drug policy is to alter the high-risk behavior in such a way that the person can undo or at least move away from the continuing damage. And that's preferable to having society acquiesce and the council of despair and accept this behavior and enable it. Describe for me the ideal public policy to, to prevent overdose deaths. The ideal public policy would be to put a constraint on the availability and supply of the dangerous substances themselves that would put constraints through prevention, through deterrence, through generational norms that say we are not the sort of people who do this and that a life of recovery is possible. The difficulty is how do you get people motivated to seek that treatment? Can it be a referral from a physician who says you're doing terrible things to yourself and your family and you need to move over to treatment? Is it somehow the criminal justice system that through a drug court managed to say, you're doing damage to yourself and society. We can get you into treatment and recovery. That's the option you should prefer. Whatever it takes to motivate them, to move them towards treatment and recovery, sustaining them in their injection behavior does not seem to me to advance that goal. Murray would like to see much more effort on preventing drugs from coming into the United States. He sees the criminal justice system as a key tool for getting people into treatment through drug courts, where instead of doing jail time, a person might be referred to mandatory drug treatment instead. And Murray says we need to double down on efforts to prevent all drug use in teenagers. Because that's when we see the onset of the behavior that will become ultimately dependent and addictive and deadly. And what is overwhelmingly the case for today's young person exposed to their most dramatic drug encounter, it's legal marijuana at the highest rates of THC concentration that we've ever seen. And that is a major contributor to subsequent dependencies on other drugs, including the opioids. I fail to see how enabling injection drug use in a neighborhood, which may be a very vulnerable neighborhood with non-privileged people who are a minority, who are at great risk themselves, is somehow going to serve as a vehicle for conveying the messages of protection and recovery and fulfilling lives. If harm reduction is to have a prominent place in U.S. drug policy, Murray says it must prove that it leads to less drug use and overdose death overall. Vancouver went all in on harm reduction over the last 20 years. And yet, says Murray. They still have in these provinces, in British Columbia and in Alberta next door, which runs a facility as well, higher overdose rates over time than they've had before. Now, advocates of safe consumption sites say that is mainly because drug dealers have started boosting the potency of their heroin by mixing it with a synthetic opioid called fentanyl, which is cheaper and stronger than heroin. Yeah, but I mean, but fentanyl is found throughout the nation. And the places where they advance the most progressive safe injection facilities have higher rates of overdose. They have the highest rates of overdose. They seem to be attracting people who come there and take, engage in very high-risky behavior. In Vancouver, we've seen basically in the last year, there was a doubling of overdose deaths. But hang on a sec, says Keith Humphreys. I'm a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, and I'm the chair of the Stanford-Lancet Commission on the North American Opioid Crisis. Humphreys worked in that same drug policy office as Murray during the Obama administration. And he points to West Virginia, which has the highest opioid overdose rate in America. Those deaths have increased in a similar way to Vancouver. But West Virginia has taken the opposite approach. It has no supervised injection sites, few needle exchange programs, long wait lists to get addiction treatment, and police regularly make drug arrests. That, to me, is cause for some humility 
from everybody who thinks they found the answer and that everyone else who isn't doing what they're doing is stupid or, or uncaring. Why is it so difficult to find a balance on this? Um, well, it's, it, it's a great question because I've spent my whole life, uh, my whole professional life around um, health care. And there are no arguments, like if one pain doctor says, well, I cure, I, you know, the surgery fixed the bone, the person has no pain. And then the other doctor says, well, I had a different kind of patient. I was only able to reduce the pain by 30%. They don't immediately get into a fight over whether total elimination of pain or reduction of pain is better. It's just like, well, you do what you can for each patient. I mean, it's, it's not even a dividing line. But it has become one around drugs as if there's some innate, must be an innate um, fight between people who say, I'd like, I'm trying to produce a perfect state of abstinence and lifelong recovery versus I'm trying to um, reduce the damage. Um, and um, I think people often feel, each camp feels degraded by the other sometimes, and sometimes they are. But one of the things we say in our Stanford Lancet Commission is everyone is doing public health and they should stop um, viewing each other as the enemy. You know, we're all working together to try to create a better world and we should all do that. So what can we agree on? Where is the middle ground? Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind today. I'm Julie Rose. The commission that psychiatrist Keith Humphreys led on the opioid crisis in North America was a joint effort between Stanford and the Lancet Medical Journal. Their overarching conclusion is that we should be doing everything that works to reduce opioid overdose deaths and to prevent new addictions. But, says Humphreys, we don't know if all the stuff we're doing is actually effective. For example, fentanyl test strips. They're a quick way to check street drugs for fentanyl. Do, do they reduce harm? We, we don't fully know that. We're trying it. I'm glad we're trying it. But, um, you know, most heroin has fentanyl in it in a lot of the countries, so they're not that useful in all places. Um, do people use them? How often are overdoses avoided? We don't know those questions. Supervised drug consumption is another area where we have a lot of weak research um, that convinces people who were always very in favor of them that they work, um, but it would be good to get some stronger research on them. What's weak about the research uh, regarding supervised or safe consumption sites? So a, a review of it done uh, a few years ago showed that 80% of all the studies were done on just two sites, uh, the Vancouver site and the one in Australia. And very well-known phenomena, not unique to drugs at all, is that founders get better effects than everybody else. Um, you know, when you invent something and you're passionate about it and you really care about it, um, it tends to work better for lots of reasons, but that doesn't mean that other people can replicate it. So when 80% of the data is on founder sites, usually studies done by people who work there, believe in it very passionately, that's not going to be as, uh, as convincing as evaluations in new places. Um, the second thing is that, you know, there is no uh, randomized design of any sort or even quasi-experimental design. They're mainly just correlations between people show up and, you know, we, and we save them. And that's, that's certainly good. But that doesn't prove there's a causal link between, you know, building these sites and a community having low, a lower overdose rate. Which is important because public health agencies have limited resources. That's why if I were running a, a public health department, I would be thinking, is it really worth buying this building and staffing it up to do this versus opening another buprenorphine clinic, which I know is going to have an impact. And those are the decisions, uh, you know, people who manage government have to make. And for that, they would need to have better data on supervised uh, drug consumption services. There's also just the fact that these sites are physical locations. Because you're tied to bricks and mortar when you build one of these things, um, you don't tend to touch much of the geographic population. Not many people are going to, you know, get on the train, go into town. Um, to use heroin at a, as a designated site run by the government. It's mainly going to be people who live right nearby. So there's not, never going to be that many of them, and they're only going to reach a narrow community. So that means if just in terms of moving the big population numbers, they're not going to do it. But supervised injection sites wouldn't even exist without naloxone, since that's the drug that makes it possible to reverse an opioid overdose. So let's focus on that, on naloxone, says Keith Humphreys. The modeling we did with the Stanford Lancet Opioid Commission showed that dramatic expansion of naloxone would be a highly life-saving policy, like cutting overdoses by tens of thousands per year. He estimates naloxone has already reversed at least 300,000 overdoses in the U.S., 
That is 300,000 people who probably would have died otherwise. So that's an example of, you know, really, really good harm reduction. It in no way affects a person's drug use. They are still addicted. If they were, if they were addicted before, they're addicted after. Um, but it does take care of the harm, the acute harm, or the fact that they're not breathing at this moment. And if we don't get their breathing started, they're going to die or suffer serious um, brain damage or other organ damage. So it's uh, really the perfect harm reduction strategy for an opioid epidemic. The Stanford Lancet Commission would like it to be even easier for people to get naloxone at pharmacies and public buildings. Some states have started giving it out in libraries even. Let's have more of all of that, says the commission. Plus, new innovations like imagine a naloxone pump someone who uses drugs could wear to automatically reverse an overdose the way an insulin pump regulates blood sugar for a person with diabetes. Humphreys says the opioid crisis presents three different challenges that require different strategies. First, we need to prevent new addictions. You know, we need to have opioid stewardship in medicine, and we need to have a national strategy for pain. So that means doctors, nurses, and pharmacists all on board with clear guidelines for when and how to prescribe opioids. And that is for the future. All of that is for the future. But you still have to deal with people who've got the problem right now. And we think the way you do that is you build addiction care of all sorts into the American healthcare system permanently. Right now, treatment for opioid addiction happens outside the mainstream healthcare system. You generally can't just go to your primary care doctor and get started on methadone or buprenorphine. You have to go to a special clinic that probably has a waiting list. If somebody overdoses and gets revived in the emergency room, they can't get started on medicine to treat their addiction right then and there, which would be a better way to potentially keep them alive. Instead, they have to go find a clinic and hope they can get in. And then they have to figure out how to pay for the whole thing because it's usually not covered by insurance. So that is another recommendation from the Stanford Lancet Commission. We're going to say Medicaid, Medicare are going to reimburse these services and they're going to reimburse them at adequate levels. And all private insurance is going to cover them as well. And we're going to train every physician, nurse, psychologist, pharmacist about these conditions. So they're well equipped to do it throughout their career. And you do that to take care of the people who are already addicted. And the hope would be that uh, as many as possible will get into recovery and then they will have much higher quality of life and longer lives. Some of them never will, sadly enough, some of them never will. And for them, what you try to do is keep them alive and, um, and try to reduce the damage their addiction does to other people as well. And that's what the role is for harm reduction. That would be things like offering clean needles and naloxone. Now, for this to work, doctors in the United States will need a new mindset, says Leslie Soon. She's a hospitalist at San Francisco General and the VA hospital. I think just in general, all of American society historically has had this very um, abstinence-based view of drug use. That, you know, if someone is suffering from addiction, that's more often a moral failing. I think that's a very common um, idea that people have, especially people who have gone through medical training. Dr. Soon is the rare primary care physician who also has expertise in treating addiction. Early in her training, she was struck how a lack of knowledge or empathy about addiction could cause harm to patients. So when I was um, an intern, so my first year of medical training, um, I remember very um, specifically, you know, I had one patient who was being admitted to the hospital for um, a life-threatening infection. Um, And I remember, you know, they were on um, a really high dose of methadone, which is a treatment for opioid use disorder. And I remember my supervising uh, physician being at the time saying, you know what, I'm really uncomfortable with how high their methadone dose is. So I'm actually going to reduce it by 50 percent. The supervising physician did not have experience treating opioid addiction with methadone and also didn't consult the patient's physician. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's odd. That's, you know, that's not something we usually do for other medications. Why would we do it for methadone? And, you know, we know we knew from their records that they had been on this medication on a stable dose for quite some time. And so it felt odd to me to do that. I remember the patient being very upset. They experienced, you know, withdrawal symptoms after we reduced their dose. And that's not something we would do, for example, like diabetes. Like we wouldn't reduce somebody's insulin um, just because we felt uncomfortable with their dose. Diabetes is actually a good example of how soon things doctors need to be thinking about addiction. If someone is diagnosed with diabetes, 
and they are continuing to, you know, not have, be able to live a healthy lifestyle. I think the idea is that we wouldn't turn them away from treatment. We would still offer them medications. We would still offer them, you know, strategies to keep themselves healthy. And if they can't hit every single thing, like if they can't cut sugar from their diet, if they're not 100% adherent on their medications, um, we wouldn't turn them away. And so then that same idea of harm reduction is that we try to promote strategies that keep people safe and keep people healthy. And if they're not like able to do every single thing that we throw at them, like that's okay. Um, as long as they are safe and trying to really kind of um, reduce as much of the harm that, 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 you know, that the drug use can cause. San Francisco General, where Dr. Soon works, now has an addiction care team on call to guide hospital physicians as they care for patients with substance use disorders. And Dr. Soon is among the harm reduction advocates also calling for the U.S. to ease restrictions on heroin possession and then to create a system to guarantee that the drugs are pure and not laced with fentanyl. What increases the risk of drug use the most is the fact that our drug supply right now is just so poisoned. This is very similar to um, alcohol prohibition when we banned the sale um, and manufacturing of alcohol and people made their own alcohol and people developed, you know, complications from it um, because they didn't know what was in their supply and it wasn't regulated. Alcohol is not, you know, by no means a perfect drug because people still have lots of harm from alcohol every single year. But the fact that, you know, we know what we're buying, we know exactly what percentage is alcohol because it's on the label. You know, we don't have to worry about our alcohol being poisoned um, with other things. And so the same idea is like, you know, by offering um, a safe supply for people to use that's not poisoned or tainted with other things, like people can control their use more safely and stay alive. It's unclear at this point who would offer this safe supply of heroin. Would the government make it? Or would it be made by drug companies and approved by the FDA? Would you always need a doctor's prescription? Yeah, we did that. It was called OxyContin. How'd that work out? This is Keith Humphreys again. He's the psychiatrist who led the Stanford Lancet Commission on the Opioid Crisis. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be flip about it, but, you know, that is exactly the argument Purdue Pharma made, that these are safe. Doctors need to prescribe them. Doctors ramped up prescribing 400%, and that is how we got here. So um, it, you have to ignore hundreds of thousands of deaths from legally produced, prescribed, clearly labeled drugs of consistent quantity to come to the conclusion that what we really need is a lot more of that. What we do need is to get better at preventing fentanyl-laced heroin from getting onto America's streets in the first place, says Humphreys. And, you know, we need some innovations on that front. I mean, just as an example that the Opioid Commission pointed out, um, you know, uh, the government held a competition to detect fentanyl in packages without opening them. And a company won, a, I think it was one or two million dollar prize for a CT scanner like you use in a hospital that could detect the signature of fentanyl in a package. That's an example of an innovation. Is policing the border increasingly trying to find the many creative ways that drug traffickers are going to get drugs across the border? Is Do you think that's a losing battle? Um, you know, it's, it, it's like all law enforcement. You have to compare what would it be if you did nothing, right? So we only catch a small proportion of burglars. But if we said, you can just burgle any place you want, go ahead, we will never do anything about it, we promise, there would be a lot more burglary. So having a certain amount of presence at the border is good, just so we don't have 18-wheeler trucks openly shipping in fentanyl. Um, but you will never um, stop some drugs from getting in to the United States from other country. We're a huge country with huge borders. So it's a, um, a place where you know, enforcement is important, but has a limited role. And the more important thing uh, is to persuade as many people as possible not to use these substances in the first place. Um, so that uh, there, then, then there is less incentive for suppliers to flood the United States with these drugs. And Humphreys says cities can start by shutting down open-air drug markets. So the classic thing, you might see 5, 10, 15, 20 people standing around, sometimes with guns in their belt, who are selling drugs. Lots of traffic coming in from outside the neighborhood. There's usually also a lot of use around them. There's often a lot of noise and disorder. It's a terrible place to try to raise a family. So they're very harmful. And it is a 
it is a harm reduction strategy to close down open air markets. And this is what most European cities have done. The method by which this is done, you take care of the entire market at the same time. So you have police go around and they do, uh, they do covert buys, which they film. They don't make any arrests. And then they call everybody in, all the dealers at once. And usually they call in their families and community service providers. And the police put all the pictures out and say, we could arrest every single one of you right now. But we're willing to let you all walk. No penalty at all. But you have to stop dealing in this neighborhood. And your family's here to talk about why they want you to exit drug dealing. And if you need job services, they're here. If you need health services, they're here. If you need mental health, they're here. We want to help you get out of this. And it's remarkable how you can collapse a market that way. And they don't shift. That is the remarkable thing. They almost never do. Um, it takes a particular concentration of buyers, sellers, and other sort of neighborhood variables for it to exist. So places that have closed them, they have generally stayed closed rather than just moving two blocks away. Do they have less drug use in their communities as a result of that? I would say almost certainly not. Um, but it's harm reduction. It's okay. Um, you know, what they have less of are people shooting each other. Families being terrorized, uh, you know, kids not being able to get to sleep at night and, you know, and then, and then you know, go to school exhausted and, and stressed out. Um, those are the harms you're trying to reduce, but they'll still be drugs. I mean, my friend David Kennedy at, uh, in New York, who's, who's done many of these low-arrest crackdowns, uh, uh, pointed out to me, he said, there are many communities with lots of drug use and lots of drug dealers and no violence. They're called suburbs. Is arresting people for drug use, also an effective part of this strategy? The Lancet Commission said a couple things. Number one, incarcerating people for the you know use or possession of opioids puts them at great risk for overdose, makes them go through suffering and withdrawal, and does no, has no deterrent value. So we said, we don't think that should happen at all. Even if it's a portal to put them into a drug court, which can force them into treatment or detox. You can do that without throwing them into a jail. I mean, if someone, let's say someone is serially breaking into houses to, to buy drugs for their addiction, you can arrest them and put them in a drug court without throwing them in a jail. And also you're doing that based on the fact that they're committing burglaries, not for the drug use per se. And so you can focus law enforcement on that, public safety, without trying to incarcerate people just for the fact that they've got the drug. Um, we also should stop punishing uh, pregnant uh, women who use drugs as if they were child abusers, which is done in certain parts of the country. And we should stop punishing people for their entire lives for drug crimes, you know, and making it so that even though 10 years later, you can't get a student loan, you can't get housing, you can't work in certain professions. That's a barrier to people getting into recovery and staying in recovery. And our, our commission said all those collateral penalties, as they're known, should be uh, gotten rid of. There is a harm reduction-centered approach to policing that does a lot of what Humphreys is describing. It's called LEAD, which stands for Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. And it has been adopted by more than 60 departments around the country. Albany, New York was one of the first. Brendan Cox was police chief at the time. You know, when I came on in 1994, and certainly for the first um, half of my career, the traditional answer to the war on drugs and the traditional answer to stopping crime, especially issues around substance use, mental health, poverty, homelessness, those lower level crimes that many times you were arresting the same people over and over again, was to arrest people, put handcuffs on them, get them to court um, and sanction them and try to force them to change their behavior. Um, even though we know that the way people, all of us, change is not normally through being forced to do so. The way we change is usually on our own terms. So in Albany, police officers responding to certain nonviolent crimes have the power to decide on the spot whether to arrest someone or hand them off to a social worker from the LEAD program. I'll give you an actual example. On April 3rd of 2016, two officers get a call for a shoplifter. They get to the store and the loss prevention officer comes out to meet them and says, I've been talking to this guy while I'm waiting for you guys, and I'm okay if you guys decide that you don't want to arrest them. So they're like, okay, well, we got to go talk to him. So they talk to this guy, and he's been arrested 44 times, um, 22 convictions, mostly all low-level shoplifting crimes. He's a guy, he's in his 40s. He's got a significant um, addiction to heroin. He is tired. He wants to change. But he, he uses every day because 
when he doesn't use, he gets sick and there's no easy route to get in to get medical assisted treatment. So he's like, you know, I, I want some help. I'm tired. I support this addiction by stealing every day. And it's really just enough to keep me from getting sick every day. Is the 45th arrest all of a sudden going to be what makes this person change? Um, is somehow that 45th time of punishing him or trying to, uh, to, to coerce him into doing something different going to change? And the answer is no. So those officers, because we had in place a different system to be able to follow, they were able to call a case manager, a social worker, to meet them and to hand this gentleman off to the, to the social worker. And that social worker then started building a relationship with him. It's not as easy as just, hey, just put him into, you know, get into a methadone program. He had a lot of other issues happening. He wanted to get into a methadone program. So he's got to go on a waiting list. He didn't have any kind of identification, so we needed to get him an ID. He had a significant health issue that needed to get treated, that he needed to actually have insurance for. The criminal justice system cannot do any of that stuff. You're turning the police department into a social service agency in that case. Well, but the, but the good thing here is actually we were using an outside source, an outside social work agency to do that. So we're removing this gentleman from the system completely because we're working with a community-based agency to do all that stuff. And so does it work? I mean, does that guy no longer get arrested for shoplifting to fuel his heroin addiction? So, yeah, so we, we have been able to, so he was diverted April 3rd of 2016. And at least the last time I checked in, he has not been arrested since. He's had some struggles. He's, he has relapsed a couple of times, but both times that he relapsed, the ones, one was recent due to the, certainly due to the pandemic. Um, he reached right back out to his case manager because he had a relationship with that case manager that he felt trust in. He didn't have the same stigma that you would have if you were attached to the courts, if you were attached to the criminal justice system. And nor did he need to get re-enrolled in anything because we're a long-term solution. We don't have it like, hey, you graduated, you're done. It's like, no, whatever you need for however long you need it, that's how we're going to work with you. Well, but what if you, so you meet this person where they are and then they shoplift again. Does that disqualify them from the lead program and instead they get sent to jail? So if the person shoplifts again, they're free to be arrested for that crime. So it's not like they're going to, they have a get out of jail free card for the rest of their lives. What we don't want to do is kick them out of lead based on that new crime. What we want to be able to do is re-engage them and say, well, okay, why did this happen? What caused you to have to shoplift? And what do we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen again? You know, the gentleman from the first, that first diversion, the case manager needed to work with him on a couple of things, you know, while we were waiting to get him into a methadone program. You know, one, how are we going to make sure that you stay alive while we're waiting for this slot to open? So, you know, do you have access to Narcan? Do you have access to clean syringes? So that's number one. Number two, what can we do to make sure that you don't get arrested while we're waiting for this to happen? So you're not shoplifting. Like, is there somebody you know that you can go work part-time for while we're waiting for this? Is the community safer, though? Completely. It's not a it's not a quick turnaround. Sometimes people are still going to see individuals on the street. But compared to the system we have now, we're absolutely making the making the community safer. Um, You know, what we've seen in a number of jurisdictions, pretty much in all of our jurisdictions, is is a community that's much more satisfied. Um, But we have to make sure we're working with the community. We, We have to make sure the community is educated as to what we're doing. We want the community to be involved in this. Community members can actually make a referral. So I can call the project manager for lead and say, hey, you know, Brendan Cox, he comes into my store, you know, he steals food sometimes, you know, I know he's got an addiction. I don't want to bother the police department with this. They don't need to be arresting him. I'd rather see him get help. Can you guys take a look? Chief Cox says harm reduction is often counterintuitive for cops. But he says... Once they've diverted someone successfully and they're no longer arresting that person over and over for the same low-level crimes, the officers get it. We don't always have to put handcuffs on people to create a safer public. In fact, we can prove that putting handcuffs on people doesn't always create a safer public. We arrest people, we prosecute them, and all of a sudden they lose housing. They lose Medicaid. They lose treatment. They lose a job. They lose their family. Why are we going to continue to do that when we're not only harming that person, we're harming the community? So let's do something different. Let's actually reduce the harm. Remember Maya Salovitz from the start of the episode? When she first learned to clean her needles from Maureen Gammon, she wasn't interested in stopping her drug use. But 
because Gammon met her where she was in that moment, Solovitz avoided getting HIV, which meant that she was still alive two years later when she finally was ready to stop. I had been um, suspended from Columbia College for uh, cocaine, and um, I was also facing some legal consequences related to that because I was selling cocaine. And then I decided I had already ruined my life, so I may as well try heroin, and that didn't go so well either. So at that point, I was just a horrible mess. I was shooting up you know, dozens of times a day. I was injecting both Coke and heroin. Um, I was, you know, weighed 80 pounds and my hair was horrible and I was just a wreck. And so I basically thought that I had ruined my life and I felt very hopeless. I had previously really not envisioned myself as someone with addiction, even though I was injecting drugs, which sounds very strange. But at that moment, I basically saw that the drugs weren't working. And that the thing that had given me solace when I was depressed and felt lonely and isolated and unable to be loved was now causing a lot of harm and I needed to do something about it. So I went to your traditional 28-day, 12-step based rehab. I was extremely lucky in that I was able to get help because my parents could pay for it on their insurance. And... I was also, since I was facing legal consequences, I was able to demonstrate that, you know, hey, I am actually getting better, and the judge decided to give me a second chance. Because Solovitz was able to avoid jail, her recovery stayed on track, and she's been free of cocaine and heroin ever since. She's written a number of books on addiction, and she's an advocate for giving people who use drugs more of a voice in how we help them. You know, the people that we stigmatize and the people that we tend to think are just awful people, oftentimes if you talk to them and you listen to them, they have had horrible things happen to them and they are self-medicating whatever that is. And if you can see something in them and value that, you can often help them move to a better place. Now, does this mean everybody's going to get gloriously abstinent tomorrow? No. Does this mean everybody's going to get a methadone tomorrow? No. But it does mean that small positive changes add up over time. And that if you can see value in, you know, people who are not even able to value themselves, you can really make a huge difference, just like Maureen did for me. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me and Aubrey Johnson with help from Ciara Hewlett and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschussel, Jacob Molaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.